95 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we take a look at how things are going so far in 2021 for three of the Cup Series' biggest names. I'll give you a hint, they're all winless, and we try to preview the Bristol Dirt Race. So many unknowns, we'll try to focus on what we do know. But first, as always, this is episode 95 of Positive Regression. This is the Bob Levine edition. Yes, David, Bob Levine, the owner. He and his wife, the owners of Levine Family Racing, a team that gave it a decade and, and seemingly did just about everything it could to make it and, and try to succeed, take those steps. Drivers included David Starr, Scott Speed, Blake Cook, Scott Riggs, Reed Sorensen, Michael McDowell, Ty Dillon, Casey Kane, Matty D, and Christopher Bell to f- final it all off. David, 256 Cup Series starts, nearly all of them coming with a number 95 car. When I say Levine Family Racing, what will you remember? What do you think of in the future? Hmm. So, yeah, there there are no wins uh, to speak of with this team, but sometimes that isn't a legacy. I think the 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 interesting legacy here are the drivers that you mentioned who occupied that seat. Uh, we're going to look back, uh, on some of these names fondly, uh, Christopher Bell, Matt Benedetto, and Michael McDowell, uh, would eventually represent future success. Uh, McDowell and Bell were the first two winners of this year's NASCAR season. And Matt Benedetto, you know what? It's uh, at the time, such a great call when his, Best efforts within the sport were not superficial while driving for, for go fast racing and other back markers. And LFR unearthed him from the back marker teams, uh, potentially a driver who should have never been that close to just being completely out of the sport. He might not be uh, a future superstar or a hall of famer. Uh, one day, but he also shouldn't have nearly been out the door completely and LFR rescued him. And, and honestly, he, whatever transpires beyond the season, he probably owes the rest of his career to LFR. So yeah, I mean, what a, what a trip starting out as a, a start and park team with, uh, with Scott Speed, uh, back when starting and parking was you know, fashionable is not the right word, but we'll say fashionable. Uh, to a point last year where with Christopher Bell, they were a borderline playoff contender. And even at the end of the year, they finished third at Texas Motor Speedway. Their final start on their home track, their first ever start came, of course, at Texas Motor Speedway with David Starr. So, uh, nearly a, a dream finish, but I'd say a fitting finish to the uh the LFR timeline. Yeah, and like, like I was saying before, I mean, it seems like they made every effort that you the decade long process, right, to be a start in Parker, to go and qualify and miss races, right? Uh, they missed plenty of races, I believe, trying to come up and qualify and not be able to do it to then, you know, getting the getting the drivers and being a back marker car to climbing the next step finally getting an alliance right getting a big name in there like Casey Kane like they were making these steps and it seemed like there were aspirations right there are smaller teams that, that never look they, they make it work because you can get a paycheck by running in the back right i mean there's the economics of it all 
but there, some teams don't have that aspiration of ever being one of these big winning cup teams where it felt like LFR was, and it was just taking small baby steps. And even as far as to get the Toyota affiliation and the Gibbs affiliation, I mean, it was taking all those necessary steps and it just couldn't pan out. Finally, economic wise, it just didn't make any more sense. Yeah. And, and not, as you're saying that, I was thinking about Jermaine racing, which also uh, closed its doors at the end of last year. And while the two ended the same way, their incremental steps within the sport weren't the same. And your keyword there was aspiration. It seemed that LFR always wanted more and slowly pieced it together over time. There wasn't an all-in rush to build something beyond their means. It literally was a step-by-step process that we watched and we watched an organization transform before our eyes it was a monumental thing when they ended up signing Casey Kane. I mean, that it was that, huge. It, it, it put them on, it put them on the map essentially. But from there, the, the Toyota relationship was big. And you wonder if COVID hadn't happened mm-hmm. and we would be driving the new car this year, if they would still be in the sport. I think they, uh, that they would. Um, and that growth would continue and just those incremental steps from essentially nothing to becoming a program of relevance is really cool because we don't see that a lot in NASCAR money certainly makes the world go round and, and usually people order more than they can eat. Uh, that was not the case here. These incremental steps made it uh, fun and admirable. Yeah. I, I have a personal admiration and, and connection with them just being with race hub and everything. They, they were always very open. We got to do a lot of stories with them. They were in Alan Quickie's old garage. It, it was just fun to see that team grow and talk with them because it was a small team that would give you access. And that was always great. And a, a true family deal. Like I, I mentioned, Bob and his wife, they were always at the track, always good to talk to uh, Bob's family, his son, uh, always involved with the team. They would put on a few years. They did a thing called camp 95 where they brought a bunch of kids in and they got to learn every aspect of racing, right? David, I mean, from being an engineer to a crew chief, to a driver, to front office, selling sponsorship, all that stuff. I was a part of that, got to do some of those seminars, but that, that literally put some of the people, some of those kids are in the sport right now because of the camp that they went to. So I just have a lot of admiration for what that family did over there. And, uh, I hate to see him out of the sport, but Bob Levine still on Twitter and one of the best parts on Twitter <laughs> right now. So we have to, we have to add that to his legacy, what he is contributing in terms of the knowledge, right? There's so much we don't know about this sport that is kind of behind a curtain and Bob Levine is not afraid to share it. And we are loving every single tweet of it. Uh, well said. It's still sparking conversations within the sport. So, you know, that, that participatory part, uh, very good. I appreciate having all the Levines, uh, as a part of, uh, NASCAR for, uh, the, the little amount of time we enjoyed them. Amen. Episode 95 of Positive Aggression, the Levine Family Racing Edition. Thank you all very much. All right, let's get this week started, David, because we are six races into the season. And it, it's time to, I think it's time to give an early season report card, or at least a review of, of what's going on. Because when we started this year, David, our first episode was dedicated to big picture drivers. We previewed Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, and Chase Elliott, right? And trying to, you know, preview what was going to happen to them in 2021. Now, six races in, we look at those three drivers. They are winless so far. Six different winners. None of them are 
Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch, or Chase Elliott. Now, wins don't always properly tell the story, so we're going to break down what these early season showings are telling us. Uh, I don't know if you want to chime in, you know, a big picture, but let's start with Kevin Harvick. But uh, six races in, let's go over these three. Sound good? Yeah, it sounds great. I'm, out, of, out of curiosity, are you shocked that these three drivers are winless at this point? Absolutely. Okay. Um, uh, be, look, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be. Maybe every season really is the start of a blank page, but I, I like to believe with the rules package, with some of the carryover and not sh- too many changes from last season, I thought there would at least be some continuity in terms of who was good and who was fast and getting to victory lane at some of these similar tracks. And frankly, we haven't seen as much of that as I expected. I think they would each agree with what you just said. I think that they thought that things would have broken a little in their favor. Um, but yeah, let's, let's go ahead and start with, uh, with Mr. Harvick here. Uh, where do you want to begin? All right. Yeah. Perfect. Kevin Harvick, six races into the season, David, five top tens out of six races. Pretty good, right? Two top fives in six races. Not bad. But when we think of Kevin Harvick and the speed and everything that they need out of a race and they are capable of, his season does not pass the smell test so far. Let me tell you, they have not led a lap since the Daytona 500. You know, the results are there in terms of the results column, but it looks like he's doing, he's making more out of what he has. And I don't know how long that can go on. Uh, okay. Good points. His production and equal equipment rating right now, uh, through six races is 3.667. That is off of his 4.722 last year in what was an eight-win season. But that is a rating that would have ranked third in the series last year. So good production. I don't think that's a shock. The difference in speed to me is jarring just because of what we've come to expect from him and Rodney Childers. Five of their first six years together they produced the fastest car in the series and they ranked second in the outlier. They ranked fourth fastest last year and they rank 11th among full-time teams right now. And the worrisome part is that the speed during a race is getting progressively worse. Uh, they ranked higher in median lap time during the Phoenix first stage than they did in the final stage. Uh, same thing last weekend in Atlanta. Uh, Harvick turned the fastest lap of the first stage and was complaining about the handling shortly after the competition caution. He ended up having the ninth fastest car in the race. It wasn't as bad as it seemed, but it did seem and does seem that other crew chiefs are diagnosing and fine-tuning a lot better than Rodney Childers right now. And in fact, in each of the last two races, the winner had the fastest car in the closing run without ranking particularly high in median lap time during the first stage. Martin Truex had the 12th fastest car during the first stage at Phoenix and the fastest car during the final stage And that helped in him winning that race. Uh, The difference here, though, is that these crew chiefs are making cars faster and are finding balance. 
they are tapping into a setup that is already optimized for these tracks. But they didn't have practice time to shake down their cars. They're all utilizing the early stage as a de facto practice. And that is when they are likely leapfrogging the number four car, which may or may not be fine-tuning its way out of whatever the baseline setup was. So in theory, no, I don't believe Harvick can keep up the good runs with his car becoming slower as races progress uh, relative to the field. We haven't had a single race end at all this year with a restart, and that's been a big problem of his so far this year. Um, his retention is hovering a tick over 40% across both grooves. So he's been incredibly fortunate as well that these races are not breaking at all in a manner that clearly does not suit him right now. And no, if you line up all these numbers, connect the dots, it doesn't bode well, at least in the short term. Wow, that is really good insight. He has been something of a closer, right? Like like he finished 10th in Atlanta, and that was not representative of his day, I didn't feel, right? I mean, that was probably the best he ran all day in terms of a finishing position, right? He came on at the end, if you will. So, But in terms of creating that track position, you mentioned the restarts. Uh, not going his way, being fortunate there, they haven't had late race restarts. What's he doing on, on the long run in terms of ma- creating track position? Uh, are we seeing something of a decline? Can the crew chief help? Like, wh- wh- what's the fix here? What's the diagnosis first? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, everything he said is true here. Um, Kevin Harvick's surplus passing value right now at a negative 3.29%. His restarting as mentioned, a big problem. Uh, Atlanta was his only positive passing effort to date, but Rodney Childers also chipped in some big assists. He had nine positions gained on green flag pit cycles last Sunday. That was more than any other crew chief. And this is something that I wrote about last week for NBC Sports. Kevin Harvick isn't the kind of surplus passer that he was during his first five years paired with Rodney Childers. I mean, he really put the team on his back in those first five years, but in these recent two seasons, and we're going on a third now, they've been wise enough to understand what this version of Harvick looks like. And they're, they're smart enough to not rely on Harvick to do this kind of extraordinary heavy lifting. Right now we're at a point where Harvick is passing worse than his statistical expectation in 2019. And in 2020, he was right at it. Children's strategy numbers 23 positions gained on green flag pit cycles in total this year, 13 on non-drafting ovals specifically, and over 90% retention. That's fantastic. Mm. And that's going to be tough to keep up, but it's worth a try, especially if there isn't a consistent competitive speed and if Harvick is indeed experiencing a decline that is inevitable. That tells me Rodney Childers is adapting, right? When when you have to make up for something or just find another way for track position. Uh, one thing I'll throw at you, David. Rodney Childers has been very open about the rule change they made for during inspection, right? They they have changed the way they inspect the 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 wheel wells, and what look basically the best way to say it is there was something there was a secret back there that the Stuart Haas cars, specifically the four team, 
was must have been exploiting last year because it presented it gave them a lot of downforce. And Rodney Childers has come out and say they have lost 70 clicks of downforce because of how NASCAR is now inspecting the right rear wheel well, which is so tough to say, even for a trained, classically trained broadcaster such as myself. (laughs) But uh, anyway, NASCAR made a change. It has affected the 14 big time. How long, David, do we get to use that as an excuse, if you will, before they they really have to adapt, move on, and find that speed and or downforce, whatever you want to call it again? The excuse doesn't concern me. I think what Childers might be running up against is the clock. Because as I wrote this article uh, for NBC Sports last week and Harvick's fan base is – I mean they are they are coming for Matt Kenseth's irrational uh, fans in a hurry. But they pointed out that Harvick got off to a slow start in 2019 as well. The big difference here is that in 2019, they were not driving a lamb duck car. And at some point – Stuart Haas Racing is going to turn some inner organizational focus to getting the next car correct. And if they are spending time and money on the current car for this championship, which I actually argue they might want to consider given the short window for Harvick's Prime, but I think that that is going to come to a head. How they deal with that will be really interesting. So that's a problem that didn't exist two years ago. And how Childers rectifies this downforce problem, this problem with, I mean, they essentially have middling speed, but finding a solution, it might not be that it isn't easy. I mean, if, if they can, if they can figure it out, they can figure it out, but it might be that time runs out to a point where if it's September and they haven't figured anything out yet, it might just be time to turn to the new car. And which, you know, September gets toward playoff time. And you pose this question on our rundown. Do we think this team, the four team, will be a factor in the championship race? David, at this very point, how could I say yes to that question, right? One has to, you got to show me something first, right? And in these six races, they're just not the player that we have expected out of the four team. Uh, we, we saw last year the 750 horsepower tracks gave the team some problems. So you got to rely on your strengths. Last year, those strengths were the 550 tracks. At this moment, I don't know if those strengths are there quite yet. So how can I put him as a, in the championship race, right? Or the championship four, uh, quite yet? Like, you know, can he Harvick his way to the round of eight? Uh, if you want to use it as a verb, uh, yes, absolutely. He can do that. And then if once he's there, can he win Texas? Of course, but because that's the format, but I, you know, right now it's tough for me to say that just given the numbers, right? We are used to him out there, fast car, leading, dominating. That's not there yet in the first six races. Okay, my dear co-host, I will respectfully disagree. I think that they will be a factor for the championship because at their core, this is a team that despite their foibles, they do not make tactical mistakes or many preventable errors on the racetrack. And with the playoff format the way it is, as you mentioned, that's a huge asset. Even if this isn't a top-tier team in 2021, there is a benefit to just hanging around and being a team that isn't likely to be eliminated from a round 
even if they aren't the team most likely to win all three races in the, in the round, right? So I think they are sort of built for playoff staying power. And one more thing that I want you to consider. I think this is a much better team with one win in their pocket than they are as a winless team because having one win means that you're automatically in the playoffs and it eases the burden of point padding. And as we've seen, Rodney Childers and Harvick and this four team are at their best when they simply ignore the stage point game, unless they're in the hunt for the stage win. But they've mastered the art of skipping out on all of that in an effort for track position in the beginning of stages. A one-win team can get away with doing this. A team with no wins cannot. And I think if they're able to secure just one win, they may as well win five or six this year, sort of able to tap into their tried and true formula. Good stuff. Uh, but anytime, anytime, guys, you want to start showing us, let's show it. Let's see it. Come on. So I don't know how the Bristol Dirt Race will fare for them, but maybe the week after starting at Martinsville. All right, let's move on uh, to Kyle Busch. We covered Kevin Harvick. Now let's talk Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch came into this uh, season with a brand new crew chief, a big change that we have covered uh, a lot here on the podcast in terms of just how long kind of the drought had been there for Kyle Busch and his team. So a change, it seemed, was welcome for over at JGR. So we are six races in, David. I'll, I will tee up the question to you. Do we believe this team has improved? New uh, crew chief, Ben Bishore, what's his impact, Ben? You know, it's honestly tough to gauge uh, this early. They ranked 12th in average median lap time on the 550 tracks, and their top-end lap time ranks 10th. So they've probably underperformed their own speed potential a little bit. The 18 was the fourth fastest car in Atlanta and ended up finishing fifth, and that was after the pit road penalty, and Kyle Busch was one of... Uh, really the only guy able to pass efficiently on long runs. He had the second best surplus passing value in the entire race. So he's still Kyle Busch. There isn't anything to point to as an assumption that they've definitively improved with Ben Bishore. Uh, the 18 with Bush in it still sort of firmly entrenched as the third best team right now at Joe Gibbs Racing, which does put a lot of heat on Bush, uh, and, and a little bit on B-Shore as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, two top five so far, but then the rest of his starts, 10th or worse. So, uh, kind of a similar start when I looked up the stats just on the baseline stats, a similar start to last year. Uh, David, similar to Harvick, it seems Bush has, uh, overachieved. You were just talking about his speed, uh, at Las Vegas and Atlanta and versus the finishes. Uh, do you think that is the case? I mean, how do you measure overachievement in terms of what he had and how he finished with it? Because he seems to be stronger, uh, like you were saying in Atlanta, you know, he closed well, passed well. How do we measure overachievement and is this team doing it? Uh, I, I think so because that's kind of just what he tends to do. He is a good peripheral stats guy. The numbers are still good. He was still a good passer last year despite everything else going poorly around him and not that Anything is going poorly right now, but he's doing the same things. He hasn't had a single race go negative in terms of his pass differential. He's the only driver in the series right now that can claim that. 
that includes the Daytona road course race, which as we can tell, he hated, but, uh, but I mean, he is capable. So it's, it's similar to Harvick. Yes. In that the overachieving is good. If we are simply monitoring his statistical progress, but I don't know if he can continue to do this and deliver the kinds of results that uh, he is Kyle Busch. He has paid very well the kinds of results that he has paid to deliver. Exactly. He is Kyle Busch. And that's what uh, the, the next thing we're going to talk about is uh, uh, how I factor in a lot of my decision making when answering this next question, because uh, his crew chief, Ben Bashour, stated goal was to make the championship four, uh, which is lofty. But when you have a driver like Kyle Busch, that, that has to be the expectation, right? Kyle Busch in his prime it has to be a championship four guy and no, nothing else uh, should they, they should settle for nothing else. No matter who the crew chief is, no matter the years of experience. I mean, this is Kyle Effin Bush, right? So as early as it is, do we think this team could be a championship four team? And that's where I was going with it, David, is my answer is yes, because he is Kyle Bush. Now to me, to be a championship four team, it's all about the format and that final eight round. Where's he going to win? Uh, you know, he won Texas last year. So maybe I give him Texas, but I still wonder about that, that, that lap leading, that, that kind of domination of a race we haven't seen yet. Uh, I, I worry about that, but he's still Kyle Busch, so I still believe he can be in the championship four. I'm not so worried about the lap leading that we saw. I mean, it, once the speed comes in, I that— mean, one lap, David. I, I want him to lead one lap. He hasn't led yeah. a lap all year. One no, lap would no, be nice. No, I, I know, and, but that, I don't ever get too concerned about that because once you have race-winning speed, we can see what happens, right? I, I still think he's in this, but I buy this being a 750 team. If Ben Bishore can't figure out how to conjure speed out of a car on 750 tracks for Kyle Busch, which, as we know, he is the best passer at 750 tracks each of the last two seasons, then that's the disappointing moment for Bishore. But even with sort of an iffy Phoenix outing, which the result, I would say, is was self-inflicted with a pit stop penalty, but they only ranked 15th in median lap time anyway. I don't know that we missed much. At least we know that there is a knowledge in the JGR shop of how to do well in Phoenix, as we saw Martin Truex win that race. For Bishore, though, in things that he can control right now, he's had two competent races of pit strategy. Uh, four positions gained across the two cycles at Las Vegas. Seven positions gained across the three cycles at Atlanta. Third place stage points at Atlanta. After Bishore short pitted the cycle, which was amazing to see the 18 short pit. I haven't seen that in a long time. All of this sounds small, but this is stuff that Adam Stevens wasn't really doing for Kyle Busch, and it was stuff that was winning races for other teams, some of them slower, but it was winning them races. So at the very least, this is an okay start for Kyle Busch and Ben Bishore, but I think the real answer to whether this works is how they perform on 750 tracks. All right, and we shall see that coming up very soon after the Bristol Dirt Race. So we'll look forward to that. All right, we've covered Kevin Harvick, Kyle Busch. Now we'll move on to defending champion Chase Elliott. Chase Elliott got off to a good start, was uh, a few feet and a caution light away from winning the Daytona 500, but he finished second, had some trouble on the Daytona road course, and then, David, he was oddly mediocre on days when his teammates were winning in Homestead and in Las Vegas. 
and most recently in Atlanta when his teammate was dominating and a bunch of the other Hendrick cars were doing well, uh, great as well. Uh, he had engine trouble. So, David, this all started this year. His peer projection on motorsportsanalytics.com, it, it dipped from 2020, almost projecting less production than what we saw in his championship season. Is is this project, projection coming true to life? Is that what we're seeing right now? It's twisting your tongue, Alan. Uh, no. <laughs> he has a 1.833 peer right now. And yes, that represents a dip. But I don't know whether we have a good enough sample size of races in which the result itself on a head-to-head basis against what the result was last year for a certain track is better or worse. And I'll explain what that means. How regression manifests is if a third place result a year ago is now a sixth place result and he kind of ends up doing everything largely right, right? The, the speed ranking relative to the field is close. We haven't had an opportunity for that comparison. I was really curious about how Atlanta would go for him because he's not good there. Relative to what he does at other places, he was not a strong qualifier at Atlanta. Check the record back when we qualified. I was hoping if Hendrick has improved, which is what we have seen, if he has improved, those two things would come to the surface at Atlanta. And they did have top five speed. The the, the top end speed was good, but the engine problem robbed us of seeing their best effort. So yeah, right now the projection coming true, I'm not sure how true that's going to be across the whole of a 36 race season. All right. That's the driver. Let's talk about the crew chief, Alan Gustafson. Uh, by the numbers, David, you say, you say his pit strategy has improved, but the results aren't quite as, as there as maybe they should be with improved pit strategy. Uh, you wrote here, they're finding new ways to underachieve, which is a fun way to put it. What are they? <laughs> uh, he was fighting balance. Last weekend, he fought it in Homestead. He had the second fastest lap of the race in Homestead, but he ranked 18th in median lap time. His car is clearly capable. It's probably trimmed out for Arrow, which is a a staple of Hendrick going back to the Jeff Gordon days, but it isn't a consistent speed. Uh, at least it lacks a, a dominating consistency, kind of like what we've seen from Kyle Larson and William Byron. But since I pounded him a few times last year, I will highlight him now. Alan Gustafson's strategy numbers are up, 82% retention. But this new issue that they're sort of fighting uh, also involves him and the driver, to be fair. Perhaps it's a result of the... uh the litany of the rule changes, maybe some inspection um, that's knocked him off a little bit maybe. But compared to someone like Harvick, we know that there is knowledge of how to make a 2021 race car go very fast. That knowledge exists in their own shop. So I would assume that this is a temporary problem with an eventual solution. Yeah, one would hope there's some trickle down because the rest of Hendrick is doing great. Willie B has a win. Kyle Larson has a win. Uh, Kyle Larson, you know, kicked ass at Atlanta and it just went away at the end, but still a dominating speed that they had there. Do you think that this is a, a sign of what's to come in terms of Hendrick's, you know, bigger picture? Because these are, 
you know, four young drivers that you would think were going to stick around for a long time. Um, I don't see why it would stop. I mean, it's one thing for Larson to get his wins or near wins, but, uh, you know, I kind of expect that, right? He's Kyle Larson. But when I see David, like, William Byron and Alex Bowman all of a sudden doing good in Atlanta when the numbers previously say they had not been so great at Atlanta. I mean, the the whole tide is rising over there. So that seems like something good is happening over at Hendrick when all these cars have speed and the drivers seem to be improving with their finishes. This seems like a big deal over there. Yes, especially this year. If nothing changes, it's an obvious sign. But also, let's assume that their brand of dominance is affecting change within other organizations. Uh, a big, big part of this is the unification of the Hendrick and RCR engine programs that took place last year. And now we're witnessing the early returns of this. Uh, cars utilizing the engine right now rank first, third, and fourth in average median lap time, fourth being Kurt Busch for Chip Ganassi Racing. And we've recently seen good runs from Austin Dillon and Daniel Suarez in Atlanta. And as you mentioned, Alex Bowman too. And as we discussed, uh, Atlanta seems to sift out the fastest cars. And that is exactly what happened. All of those cars were fast that day. And for Hendrick Motorsports individually, can this early season success force other teams to strive to get better? Of course. Uh, I think Larson's addition is a big deal. I think we're realizing a lot of things that transpired the last few years were in fact meaningful. We saw Cliff Daniels improve Jimmy Johnson's speed by improving the driver's communication. And, you know, given that Johnson had one foot out of the door, about to retire, he was living in Colorado, it's a pretty good guess that he might not have been as motivated or plugged into the improvement of the program is Larson currently is because Larson's probably going to be here for a while and credit Cliff Daniels. He did a good job of building a team in preparation for whoever the next driver would be. And when that driver is as good as Larson is the immediate success. Uh, and I do consider Atlanta a success. If, if it wasn't a win, it was certainly a statement of intent uh, I don't think any of it comes as a shock. I think we're understanding the true strength right now that Hendrick Motorsports has to offer. What do you make of Chase Elliott? I think it's two weeks in a row, right? That they failed inspection, started at the rear. Um, it, it feels very furniture row like, right? When uh, Cole Pern and it just they never seemed to give a crap, right? Or it just didn't matter, right? Because it's just modern day NASCAR starting at the back. If you have a fast race car, especially with a competition caution and stage brakes, you're sure, surely you're taking a risk by being behind a bunch of cars, but it just doesn't seem to have that huge of an effect if you do start in the rear. So pushing the boundaries and failing the inspection process doesn't seem like a big deal. What do you make of, of Team Hendrick doing it this year? I like your furniture row comp. So, so if a Hendrick car fails inspection, are you putting them in your fantasy lineup? Hundred percent. I was tweeting about this doing the fantasy live show. Like the first week, it was like, okay, are we approaching the Truex rule? And now the second week in a row, it's like, all right, should we just start calling it the Elliott rule now? You know what I mean? Because uh, yeah, if they fail inspection, that means they're probably get, they're doing something right that they're going to be really really fast. So it's just something I've had in the back of my mind. But it doesn't seem to affect them, right? It, 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 there doesn't seem to be a negative sign if you're failing inspection it seems like maybe you're doing something really positive in terms of you know having a fast car the hilarious part about all of this is that hendrick motorsports owns its own optical scanning station 
They know in advance before they Most get to the track. Yeah. yeah. They, they know in advance uh, before getting to the track what will and won't get picked up. What we are seeing from them every week, you hit it dead on. It's they are trying to understand what the gray areas are and how far that they can actually push the written boundary. I don't think they will do any of this come playoff time because I think this is definitely for playoff time. But also, I and I I caution other folks thinking this way. They don't try these things if they don't think their drivers can pass their way out of the situation. Uh, I believe that about Cole Pern and Martin Truex. I believe that about Kyle Larson. I mean, a couple of years ago, it seemed like he had to start from the rear either because of a practice crash, uh, an unapproved adjustment, whatever, but they probably don't make an unapproved adjustment if Kyle Larson can't pass. And have, have, have you noticed what they've been doing here? The, the worst passer at Hendrick has not been penalized. Alex Bowman, <laughs> Alex Bowman gets through inspection. Right. The other three at Phoenix did not. All of them are efficient passers. I'm certainly sure that they know what they're doing there, which leads me to believe, Alan, that starting from the rear of the field, especially in races now with competition cautions and stage breaks, this isn't a stiff enough penalty. Right. At the very least, teams do not appear to be scared off of this penalty. So. I don't know. Might be time to to, to look at it stiffening these things. What, what what say you about starting a race two laps down? Do you think that would deter repeat offenders? Absolutely, right. I mean, you get it right the second time at least, right? Because if you're starting in the back, you have failed at least twice. So, I mean, so you're still trying. I mean, there's still that notion of like, all right, maybe if we, uh, you know. J- roll the dice a second time, maybe we'll get through with a little bit of what we want or, you know, it sets something else off and it, it kind of puts you on, you're chasing your tail at that point when you fix one thing and pushes another thing off. But yes, if, if the penalties were stiffer, I, I, I assure you, no one, why would you, right? Everyone would know and no one would fail inspection if it was that big of a penalty. And I remember, remember, Chad Knauss is now looming over all 400 cars. Chase Elliott was talking about that. I did a YouTube video on it. Check it out. In terms of what, uh, you know, car preparation, right? Chase Elliott says the cars are being delivered to the respective crew chiefs in a much better way and much more prepared way than they were last year, right? So before, now that the crew, when the crew chiefs get their hands on them, they're, they're, they're steps ahead of where they were last season. So, and I just remember Jimmy's seventh championship, right? He barely, he barely made the race because they had to roll out because they failed inspection multiple times, started at the back of the field. And this was the championship four race and they still went out there and won the damn thing. So starting in the back, it's not a foreign, foreign concept for Chad Knauss or Team Hendrick. Uh, they did it last year for their championship with Chase Elliott. That's so, right. I forgot. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. As, I mean, wow. as you're saying that, I mean, this is kind of a staple. This is what they do. So yeah, you might, you might want to retire the, uh, the Truex rule. It, it might be the Hendrick rule from this point forward. Brains, brains, brains in the gray area. All right. Good stuff. Good discussion as we look back on the first six races of the season, because what we're about to do is look forward and preview the Bristol dirt race. Um, look, we, <laughs> there's so much we don't know. And that's what makes this part of, uh, this episode and this part of the season and going on dirt in the cup cars for the first time in 50 years. Uh, that's what makes it kind of fun is that we don't know a lot of things. So maybe we can, David, focus on kind of what we do know. I'm not sure, but we'll do our best to preview the Bristol dirt race coming up. What we do know 
Drivers like Larson, Christopher Bell, Tyler Reddick, Chase Briscoe, Austin Dillon, they have dirt experience. Do you think that experience truly matters this weekend, David? <laughs> uh, I can't believe I'm previewing a dirt race. Okay. <laughs> uh, their ability to read the dirt. And mind you, dirt moves around and it changes. And given the the length of this race, it may ultimately become kind of a pavement race if the dirt isn't packed properly. We don't really know if they got that right. But the ability to read the dirt so as to know where where the lines are on the track that benefit your car, that is a huge advantage. And those guys have experience in doing that. And that... That is actually the advantage. It's not more so than the, than driving the car itself because this won't look the same. Optically, it will not be cool like USAC or World of Outlaws or Dirt Late models where they're flinging the car sideways. These cars are just far too heavy for that. So the physical driving of the car, it'll look like Eldora trucks or uh, DuCoin Arca, really clunky. But former dirt racers do tend to fare well in these races. And I believe it's between the ears. It's the knowledge base of the dirt experience more than the muscle memory of actually driving the car itself. Uh, I agree 100% and in doing our best, right, to check and try to preview this, you know, checking with drivers, checking with crew chiefs. And that was the one thing, uh, that got pointed to the most when, when, when talking with people this week, David, in terms of, you know, do these guys really have an advantage? And the answer was yes. And the, the advantage came from the, the track and the changing, uh, conditions throughout and adapting to it. And if you are one step ahead throughout a, kind of a foreign concept of a race that will give you an advantage. So at least that's what uh, people in the garage that I talk to believe will happen. Uh, those are the drivers. Similarly, most crew chiefs, they also do not have dirt experience. I mean, I asked, I asked one crew chief and he's like, I've never been to a dirt race in my life. Uh, Todd Gordon said last week, you know, they asked him, how are you planning, uh, for the Bristol dirt race? He goes, I'm asking Ryan Blaney and his dad what to do. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I mean, they're, they're being funny about it, but a lot of these crew chiefs don't have dirt experience. Uh, so, and given the format of the race, I don't know how much pit strategy there is, but do you still think they can have an effect, David, these crew chiefs? It is going to be minimal uh, because with the controlled cautions, which are necessary, there isn't a real benefit to strategy or smart strategy, no separation. A crew chief's impact is purely mechanical. If they have that knowledge at all, as you just pointed out, Adam Stevens has a dirt background. Frank Kerr, on behalf of BJ McLeod, should be in the Sprint Car Hall of Fame if he isn't already. But beyond that, to my knowledge, that might be it. Uh, the, the story about Todd Gordon, just, yeah, ask Dave Blaney. That, it might, <laughs> it might be a good call. I don't know. But also I question why teams are being thrown into this position in the first place because the beauty of dirt racing as it is properly done is that it consists of smaller sprint races for the most part, uh, duels between drivers, though there are reputable mechanics. It's no shock that I think like the last 10 or 11 Chili Bowls have been won by the same three mechanics. But 
what we are attempting this weekend is kind of a facsimile of that, and it's a long race to boot. So for me, Alan, it's more of a show. It's 100% made for TV. Fox is the inventor of the concept. So I do suppose we should just all watch and rest our brains a little bit uh, this Sunday. I don't know it's going to be that easy for crew chiefs if they're scrambling to figure out the uh, the complaints from their drivers on how to make a car better that they don't really have experience with. Yeah, and maybe that's what will make the difference, right, in terms of who wins and who does not. Again, maybe not pit strategy where the brains of the crew chief comes in. But, yes, mechanically, I, I think the best decision makers and maybe some of the smartest people will rise to the top and, uh, you know, have the opportunity to to make a big difference. Uh, I don't know. I think the crew chiefs can factor in big time, especially again, if the track is changing, if they're, if they have downloaded the knowledge that their maybe experienced driver can bring, right? Is the crew chief doing his homework and trying to get as much knowledge from their experienced dirt driver? Uh, you know, a guy like Justin Alexander, you know, what, what can he learn going into this from someone like say Austin Dillon? Um, you know, what can Rudy Fugel, what he knows about Eldora, what can he maybe tell William Byron or learn from Eldora? Uh, the track will change. There's mystery with the tires. So whoever can adapt, there will be someone who does adapt and does it a little better. Maybe that is what makes the winning difference. So I think crew chiefs will have a big, uh, part role in who wins on Sunday. So there you go. Yeah. And at this level, all drivers, especially those with a dirt background, have a general feel that they want out of their car. So that's another advantage that these dirt guys can have. But a big challenge is, again, going to be that changing racetrack. How do you adapt to a completely different racing service after every pit stop break? That That is going to be tough. I mean, it's going to be sort of just guessing what happens without knowing what exactly happens. Again, we we don't really know the dirty details, no pun intended, of how the dirt was packed at Bristol. So we don't know what this race is going to look like and say, you know, after 200 laps have gone by, that final 50, it you might just need a completely different race car at that point in time. I don't know. I can't wait to find out. And that's why, dare we, David, dare we take the next step and make predictions about the Bristol dirt race? I think we'll stay away from contrarian contenders. Look, we don't want to be foolish, right? But I will pose the question. Will Bristol provide the seventh winner in seven races? David, the floor is yours. Okay. To pick a new winner would be a bet against both Kyle Larson and Christopher Bell. So I actually think this is a fun question. It's going to be hard to pick against Bell, I think, if he's not the betting favorite just because of the plethora of, of dirt experience between himself and Adam Stevens, then I, I don't know what to think about that. But I will go the other way. I am going to say yes. There will be a seventh winner in seven races because my bet, Alan, is on chaos. I think that Ooh. is going to be the real winner on Sunday. Um, there are just going to be curveballs thrown. Again, this is uncharted territory for all of these guys. If Kyle Larson says he knows what to expect, I don't think he would ever say that. But, of course, he doesn't know what to expect because we haven't seen it. So, yeah, a little bit chaotic. Uh, I think how the heat races uh, go the day prior will be... 
maybe informative for what we see on Sunday. If they're bad the day prior, maybe it's a little bit cleaner on Sunday and then vice versa. That could happen, but I'm, I'm going to bet on the chaos. All right. I'm going with you. Uh, I say yes. We have a seventh winner. Uh, look, Austin Dillon likes the big stage, right? The weird, the, you know, the Daytona 500, Coke 600 shows up at the first uh, ever Eldora race he won. Why can't he go out and win this? Of course he can. Why not? Someone like Tyler Reddick. Uh, David, outside the dirt guys, do you think we could see uh, someone not associated with dirt? I mean, Kyle Busch is one of the best drivers in the world. Why couldn't he go out? and win this race, right? I mean, I don't know, I, but I mean, you have to t- just raw sheer talent. Why can't he adapt quick? He's Kyle damn Bush. Why can't he go out and win it? Would you put your money on or any thoughts on a non-dirt driver winning this thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, there were, what, uh, what year was it that Matt Crafton won Eldora just by kind of driving the bottom? Uh, mm-hmm. Bubba Wallace won Eldora yeah. with no dirt experience. So it's entirely possible. And we, we see this all the time. We see this, yeah. we see this all the time in ARCA, right? Like we see guys that don't have dirt experience go there and end up winning because they have teams with knowledgeable setups, but also, they can just kind of figure out the track. And I think a there is a, a general driving knowledge that these drivers have. And if it comes to the surface, then, of course, a non-dirt driver can win this race. So we'll have to see what translates from a typical dirt race to this one, just to make sure of that. Um, just at this point in time, we're unsure of what that might be. Yeah, and that's what's just crazy. It, you know, it counts, right? I mean, someone could get a playoff spot because of this. Someone will get stage points and playoff points. You know, this race counts. It's not just a crazy novelty thing. And that, that, that's what just intrigues me even more. So we will see what happens on Sunday. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, TuneIn, and now YouTube. We're available no matter your device nor screen. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This does help in spreading the word about this lovely podcast. We, of course, notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out to us on Twitter at PauseRagPod. We love answering your questions. David, you are always working hard. How do you preview this race coming up for NBC? <laughs> uh, I don't. <laughs> so here's the, here's the plan for that. This week on NBC Sports, I have articles on Kyle Larson. And in lieu of a traditional race preview, I interviewed Josh Wise. He is a former dirt racer himself. He is currently a driver coach to a slew of young drivers. And he discussed how he prepared this group of drivers for a one-off dirt race. Hint, hint, it involved him getting back into a dirt car after 10 years of not doing it. So I think that'll make an acceptable substitute. And uh, before the race, uh, for patrons at the Wendell Scott level uh, at Motorsports Analytics, I will be doing a Zoom AMA. Uh, we did one before the Daytona 500. It was a lot of fun. It's informal. It's intimate. If you are not already a Wendell Scott patron, uh, please become one and join us this Sunday. It's kind of like a tweet up, um, but it's just, you know, rifling questions at me. And uh, But it's a good time, and we will have a lot of fun before a race where we literally have no idea what is about to happen. Love it. Love the access. All right. Well, uh, yeah, just keep up keep up with me on Twitter at Alan Kavana, on YouTube at Alan Kavana Media. I will be co-hosting Press Pass on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio from 
or close to the Bristol Motor Speedway on uh, Saturday. So before the, the trucks and all the heat races get going, uh, tune in to Sirius XM NASCAR Radio, 11 to 2 Eastern. And then I will be up at Bristol just because, David, I want to be there and I want to experience it and I want to be part of the coverage uh, up there as close as I can for something of a historic race. So uh, uh, tweets will be coming directly from the race and the track. So I look forward to that, getting back to a racetrack. So, and as always, just follow me on all the social media channels and all that good stuff. And make sure you watch Fantasy Live from NASCAR.com. Uh, we, we too will have uh, a tough time previewing the uh, Bristol dirt race and who to pick and <laughs> who to stay away from. But I think we have something fun planned for you. So make sure you watch Fantasy Live over on NASCAR.com. Thank you, as always, for listening to episode 95 of Positive Regression. If you're waiting this long for some sort of Easter egg and giveaway, I apologize. There is not one, but listening this long, David, is appreciated. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Gavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. Enjoy the dirt. liked me that way deal because it's one thing to receive mcdonald's but an entirely other thing to know that they woke up early to face the world and bring you mcdonald's breakfast still hot in the bag appreciate you there's a deal for every morning now grab two loaded sausage burritos for only three bucks prices and participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.